Hey, welcome to the 74th episode of Two Writers Slinging Yang. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm a former Sports Illustrated senior writer, former ESPN columnist, author of multiple New York Times bestsellers, and a contributor to The Athletic. The music you're listening to is a song from MC Whiteout, Football for a Buck, in conjunction with my book of the same name. And this podcast is an ode to writing in all its forms, from journalism to songwriting to screenwriting to novels to romance to comics to whatever genres I'm thinking of. And with this week's midterm elections, I'm getting kick-ass political today. My guest is Daniel Dale, the Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star, and a man who has spent much of the past two years analyzing and measuring the truthfulness of everything Donald Trump says. And when I say everything, I mean everything. Every speech, every press conference, every tweet. Daniel also has some crazy stories about his time covering Rob Ford, the late Toronto mayor who once accused him of all but being a trespassing pedophile, then tried to apologize by offering to autograph a bobblehead doll. It's an insanely entertaining episode with one of the best reporters out there, and it's right now on Two Writers, Slinging Yang. All right, Daniel, first of all, um, thank you so much for doing this. This is my, uh, everyone has one of these. This is my my very special election episode with daniel dale so you've uh you've you've acquired the adjective very special so thank congratulations you on it. your job fascinates me beyond any other political media job in the country right now um because i feel like for 98 percent of us you exist first and foremost as a teeny tiny little head on twitter telling us everything yeah. that donald trump is saying you know like i actually i went to the toronto star website to read your articles and to be honest with you, I was kind of like, oh, he writes articles too. I didn't even know. I mean, I did know, but I didn't really know because what I use you for, what you have done for me very well is chronicle everything that Donald Trump says. And you've allowed me not to have to sit in front of a TV and watch it. How did your life come to this? <laughs> so it's, it's been a weird journey. Um, so my, my, I'm not a full-time fact checker. That, that is not my job description. Yeah, no, I I'm the Washington bureau chief. Um, I call myself Washington correspondent for the Toronto Star. Um, it's just, a, it's a one man bureau. So the bureau is my apartment, which is why I don't use the, the title because it sounds too silly. But, um, my job is to cover American politics. Um, so that's the president, but also things other than the president, um, Congress, things going on at the state level. Um, it's to write, write, uh, non political or non directly political stories from around the U.S. Um, but basically what happened was that I was covering the 2016 campaign and it struck me that one of the central stories was just how dishonest and how frequently dishonest one candidate was. You know, Hillary Clinton, of course, has her own honesty issues, but just in terms of daily dishonesty, daily lying, th this sort of avalanche of, of, of inaccurate information, it was coming from one candidate, from Trump. Um, so I thought, you know, this needs to be treated like a central story of the campaign, not like a sideshow, not something to be relegated to like, the, the one fact checker of the Washington Post, you know, to do a couple posts weekly. This needs to be emphasized. And so in September 2016, I started making a kind of rough daily list of all the things Trump was saying that were not true. Um, and it got such a huge response. Like there was some backlash. Some people thought it was pedantic or, or, um, irrelevant or that it wasn't making a difference. Um, but a lot of people were like, wow, we, we need this. And so I thought I was probably done with it. Um, at the end of the election, because like many people, I, you know, I wrongly thought Clinton was going to win. And then when he mm -hmm. won, um, and continued with this pace of dishonesty, it became clear that I, this was something I had to continue. So that was the, the sort of evolution. I, I don't think I'm wrong in saying in many ways, yours is a Twitter first 
job before articles, you are here yeah. to sort of give us information via social media, which is really unique and super, super 2018 in a lot of ways. Like how did that actually become the thing? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it, it's, it's strange because, um, you know, I'm paid by a newspaper, by, you know, a traditional, you know, a hundred plus year old institution to produce articles and not to, to tweet for free. Um, but what happened was, uh, I started fact checking Trump in as close to real time as possible, like as he was speaking, as he was speaking at a rally. And I wouldn't do it for every rally, but when I did, um, there was, there was a, a big response again, because I think there was sort of a, people thought that there was a kind of power in checking him immediately, you know, rather than like collecting the statements and at the end of the week, producing a list on your website of all the things he got wrong, you know, challenging him right away. And so I, I just started doing that as, as frequently as I could while also, you know, trying to keep, um, keep up my pace of producing other articles that, you know, I'm, I'm paid to do. Does watching Trump nonstop, listening to Trump nonstop, chronicling Trump nonstop, do you become at all sort of numb to it? To me, a liberal guy from New York who lives in Southern California, I can't hear his voice. I can't see his smirks. I can't watch his expressions. Um, the bombast, the nonsense, the bullshit, I can't watch it. And I wonder yeah. for you, whose job is to basically watch it, do you become numb to it in a way or accepting of it in a way? I, um, I have not become numb because I find it so interesting, even though he's often saying the same things over and over, especially the rallies. I, I find them the best view into his brain. Um, you know, even when he's being very dishonest, like what is he being dishonest about? Um, what is he ranting about today? Um, what issues is he emphasizing? And so you can sort of see his brain working in a certain way. Um, you can see what he, what he's irritated about. You can see, um, what themes he's trying to play up at, at certain times of his presidency. You see the way that he's trying to frame, uh, certain policies. And so it is largely repetitive. And I find that, you know, kind of boring. Okay. Like, you know, right now, you know, he's in the stretch of a, a, a lot of rallies in, in very few days. And so, you know, he's repeating a lot of the same lines, but it's where he deviates from the script that, that I think there's, there's a, a lot that's interesting to me. All right. So give me an example of something he has said recently that kind of fascinated you or caught your, your attention. Well, like at, at his rally, uh, what was it two days ago at the time of our, our recording this? Um, he started musing about how it would be okay to lose the house because in his life, he's always figured things out. You know, when things go, don't go his way, he just figures it out and he works through it. Um, and he made a couple other references to, to how they might lose the house. And so, you know, that might be strategic, but to me, uh, it was sort of the first indication that he, he thought that they had a good chance of losing. You know, usually he just professes that they're going to win. You know, I'm a winner. I win and everything's going to go great. And we're going to have a red Republican wave. Um, so those little moments where he goes off script and you see a hint of his real thinking, um, those are the kinds of things I'm talking about. What is your, what is your, um, how does it work for you? You wake up and then what do you do? Like, how does this, how does all, yeah. Trump all the time work for you? I'm fascinated. So, by this. Yeah. So it, it really is, you know, largely all Trump all the time. So literally the first thing I do in the morning is I check his Twitter. Like I'm still in bed. I don't have my glasses on. So I'm, I'm pretty blind without them. You know, I pick up my phone, my alarm goes off. Um, and I check his account to see if I'm already behind. And sometimes I am, you know, even if I wake up, like often I wake up at, uh, like 7.15, 7.30 AM. Sometimes he starts tweeting at six when Fox and Friends starts his favorite morning show. 
and he's already made news, you know, and we're an hour into the news cycle at, at 7.15 Eastern. Um, so if he, if he doesn't, um, then I, I scroll through everyone else, you know, everyone else's tweets on my feed to see what's broken overnight or in the early morning. Um, and then, so if there's still nothing I need to jump on, um, then it's, it's, uh, trying to think of some smart angle for the day or for the weekend, you know, that, that a hundred other reporters aren't doing, um, try to find a way to be useful while also monitoring Twitter all the time. Um, to see if something is breaking at whatever hour. Cause what, what often happens is, you know, I'll think of some like moderately smart, you know, feature story for the weekend or for a couple of days down the road. And then, you know, someone gets fired or someone resigns or Trump, you know, says something, uh, incendiary and you're, you're constantly having to, to readjust your plans because of what he does and what people around him do. Do you have people in your life who are like, um, like I had a book come out a couple months ago about the United States football league, which Trump was an owner of one of the teams. Yeah. And, right. um, my kids, you know, when I was promoting the book for whatever, two months, my kids were all but saying, dad, shut the fuck up about the USFL. I don't want to hear anything else about this ever again. <laughs> yeah. Are you a, in your life, are you able to step away from Trump when you go out for say a nice chicken dinner, you know, or are you like, <laughs> I can't believe what Trump said. And people are like, dude, seriously, you got to stop. No, it's honestly, it's the reverse for me. Like I don't talk about him very much, honestly, um, unless there's something, you know, truly great. Like, you know, it's one of the biggest news days of his presidencies and I happen to be uh, for dinner with people. Um, but I don't want to talk about it. Like I want to talk about, you know, the NBA or, you know, just stuff going on in my life or my friends' lives. Um, but it's other people like any, any, you know, party, uh, you know, people know me as like the Trump guy and they're just trying to make conversation. And so it's like, what, you know, what, how about Trump? Well, how about the latest thing this week? Uh, what do you think? What's going to happen? What's going to happen in 2020? What's going to happen in the midterms? And it's kind of a, it's kind of a curse. Um, and there's some people who are, you know, I, I live in Washington. People are super plugged in and smart and you can have interesting conversations about them, but it's, uh, it's a lot of the same, you know, kind of basic, uh, stuff that I just, I'm kind of like, let's just pick another subject tonight, please. Yeah, it's actually really funny. I uh, I used to be a baseball writer and I'd be covering the majors and I'd be attending 110 games per year and you'd be going out and you'd get, so what are the Mets going to do? And you're like, man, right, I, don't, right. <laughs> I don't care. No, it's, it's, it's totally. Yeah. And it's like, of course, you know, of course you're passionate about, you know, MLB or whatever when you're covering it and you, you know, you cared about what happened, but it's like, it's not your entire life. And, uh, and so I laugh when people, you know, sometimes I have Trump supporters on Twitter being like, you're obsessed you know, he's all you can talk about. He's like, he's eating your brain and, you know, he's dominating your thoughts. And he's like, he's, he's really not, you know, it's my job. And I think it's an important job, but I have other things I want to talk about too. Let me ask you this. How do you, um, from your place, how do you feel like we, uh, the media have been covering Donald Trump? Do you feel like we've been letting him get away with too much? Do you think we've been fair? Do you think, have we been doing? Uh, well, my focus has been the dishonesty and I think the media still has not figured out how to cover that well. And of course, you know, we have to add the caveat, you know, when we're talking about the media, we're talking about tons of different things. I'm, I'm talking here about the, the, you know, the mainstream establishment, uh, major press like the Washington Post, New York Times, uh, you know, CNN and so on. Um, I, I think, and, and local papers as well. And I think the issue for me is that, um, the media is still too often simply parroting his lies and, and other, uh, false claims without adding corrections or context. And he's still 
getting them not only quoted, but turned into headlines without correction. Um, and, and the thing is that he says a lot of these things over and over, and he's been saying them for some of them two years now. And so there's no excuse for media outlets not to know that these are coming and know what the truth is and to convey that to their, their readers or viewers or listeners. I think it's still too often not happening. And my other complaint is that, um, I, I think the dishonesty is a central story of both the presidency and, and individual moments, like, like individual rallies. And, and you read, you know, most stories on a Trump rally and they'll, they'll pick out, you know, understandably the new thing in the rally, like Trump attacks a local Democratic candidate or Trump makes such and such comment about immigration. But it will, it will not say anywhere that Trump said, you know, 20 or 25 things in that one hour speech that weren't true. And to me, if, if someone tells you, you know, 25 lies or makes 25 false claims in an hour, you know, that's, that's one of the most important things about that hour. And it just treated as like a non issue. Um, and so it, it bothers me that, um, I feel like there hasn't been all that much growth since he launched his campaign in 2015. Do you feel at all that the public is catching on or do you think we're just where we were two years ago where the same people who love him, love him, the same people who hate him, hate him. And the people who love him, even if they know he's lying, don't really give a shit about it. I, I think there's been a, a, a bit of a shift and it's not a huge shift. It's not like, you know, everyone has changed their views. Um, but I think, you know, in the polling and in the, in the polling about Trump and in the polling about the midterms, you see that there are some people who voted for Trump in the first place who, who have soured on him. And I've, I found that in my own reporting. I was in Pennsylvania last week in a, a very Trumpy uh, area in Cambria County uh, near Johnstown. And, uh, I, I just, I was just walking around a Walmart and I encountered five women in a couple hours who said they voted for him. Um, they, they've really sat on him, soured on him. They don't think he's a good person. They wouldn't vote for him again. And so I think th there are lots of people out there like that. And so I, I caution people against saying, you know, nothing matters. None of this journalism matters. Everyone, you know, it's a cult. Uh, everyone who liked, liked him then still likes him now. I, I don't think that's true. And I think there are many people who will tell you that they voted for him, not because they liked him, but because for whatever reason, for many reasons, they really did not like Hillary Clinton. And so I think there are a lot of people who are open to voting for Democrats and certainly not for not, uh, open to not voting for Trump, who did vote for him last time. Do you find it strange the way the sort of Teflon nature of some of this? I mean, I thought I thought everyone talked about the New York Times story with the, the finances and, and Fred Trump. And, and I, I definitely thought there was a huge, huge story that sort of faded quickly. But I thought the piece about um, about Trump using his cell phone and his cell phone be being tapped by China and Russia. I mean. I was actually dumbfounded by how that came and went in about a day and a half, considering it was the very thing that people were livid over and, you know, where locker up comes from. Yeah, it's, it's remarkable. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's helped him a whole lot. I think it's, it's, you know, probably the obvious that, you know, if, if you have one scandal, um, then everyone will remember it and the media can really dig into it. Like, you know, Clinton's email thing in the, in the 2016 election. But if you have a hundred scandals or a thousand scandals, you know, it's harder for anyone to remember any given one of them. And, and there's like this avalanche problem for the media, for both individual reporters and for their outlets where it's like, well, what do we spend our time and resources on? What do we put on the front page? You know, and you can't put 30 scandals on the front page. 
um, you have to pick one. And so there's this constant issue where, you know, each one is being constantly replaced by a new one. And so therefore all of them fade. And we, we had this, uh, just to go uh, briefly into my past before I covered Trump, I covered a uh, Rob Ford, mayor of Toronto, yeah. who's famous for, for getting caught smoking crack cocaine. And he was, he was different from Trump in a lot of ways, uh, especially with the, the, the open bigotry that I think Trump shows. Ford did not show that. Um, but just in terms of the constant dishonesty and the attacks on the media, they were similar. And we had a similar issue where there were so many scandals and controversies that it was hard until the crack story, which obviously resonated to get anyone to remember, um, any of them. And Ford's approval rating, even after the crack scandal, um, never went below 28%, which is, you know, slightly lower than Trump's low, but not a ton lower. So this, this is, uh, this is something I'm used to where, you know, there's this avalanche problem, scandals don't stick and, and where, uh, a polarizing scandal plague politician still has a base of loyal support. If you were living in the Perlman household right now, you would think, uh, Tuesday and the elections are, you know, that Tuesday is one of the most important days in the history of humanity. Um, you know, and the Republic depends on it, blah, blah, blah. And we're going this way or that way. And we could become an anarchy. You know, we could, you know, delve into anarchy before too long and blah, blah, blah. And he wants to be a dictator. When you're as close to it as you are, are you able to sort of take a step back and say, these are crazy times, but these are not end times? Or are you as befuddled and sort of alarmed as, you know, your average schmo in Scranton? That's a good question. Um, I think I'm l- less, uh, alarmed or agitated than a lot of the people who, who follow me on Twitter. And I, pr- I appreciate their following and their reading. Um, you know, I, I don't think, uh, America's on the verge of, uh, dictatorship or civil war or some apocalyptic event. But, um, but I also understand the alarm and, and, uh, and fear. I mean, I think it is clear. It is objectively true that Trump uh, has said many things that made it clear that he admires, you know, strongman leaders, uh, even if you're not going to call them dictators like Duterte, uh, Putin, Orban, um, now Bolsonaro in Brazil. You know, he admires leaders who trample on individual rights. He's, you know, expressed support for torture. Of course, he has very little respect for the press. Um, he's mused about revoking broadcast licenses of media outlets that he doesn't like. Um, and he, and he's, you know, he's made life very difficult for, um, for many immigrants of, of various kinds. You know, he's, he's, uh, made life difficult for Muslims in various ways. And so I, I think the, the, a lot of the fear is, is very legitimate. Um, I'm, I guess I'm less apocalyptic about it. I don't think, you know, we're approaching like apocalyptic times for the country, um, anytime in the near future, but I don't think people are crazy for, for musing about that kind of stuff. I'm reading your November 2nd Twitter stream, which is, you know, this is great. And it's like every, I don't know how long, every, every couple minutes, it's Trump lies that Diane Feinstein has quote an open border bill and Joe Donnelly supported it. It was a bill to end family separations. Trump is doing an especially inaccurate retelling of Diane Feinstein's response to John Corn's test testimony. Uh, Trump says Joe Donnelly is doing a rally with Barack H. Obama, Trump and Melania. You think it's easy to be first lady when you're married to me? You think it's easy? What are you looking for when you're live tweeting? Uh, well, I'm looking for, uh, anything, uh, interesting in various ways. So, um, is there anything new, any, any, you know, basically anything new of, of any kind, I will try to tweet because people have heard a lot of these lines for rallies for, you know, three years now. Um, 
any egregious lies, um, any, any little lies that are, uh, trivial, but, you know, revealing uh, or, or funny or, or absurd. Um, and I'm, I'm also trying to, uh, to the extent possible, you know, show, uh, uh, provide a balanced perspective by tweeting things that aren't outrageous or, or, uh, you know, that aren't dishonest. Like I'll just tweet, you know, Trump boasts about the good, you know, the good economy and the low unemployment rate for African Americans and Hispanics. Um, it, it's, it, it's almost, uh, shockingly difficult to find, you know, a paragraph of a rally though, where he's simply being factual. Um, you know, he, 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 uh, devolves into lying so quickly, so frequently that a huge percentage of these speeches are dishonest. So anyway, so I'm, I'm just trying to, uh, you know, provide a, a comprehensive account of what's happening. Um, not bore people to the extent I can not bore them by finding anything new and, and point out, uh, as much of the dishonesty as I can. Um, in late August, you did something sort of unusual. This isn't a criticism. It's just eye catching. You tweeted out that the source for a story you wrote about trade negotiations between the U.S. and Canada did not come from Bloomberg journalists, which Trump had, I guess, put out there. You know, it's relatively unusual for, for a reporter to kind of step in and say, listen, the, he's wrong or the, these are not the sources. What made you uh, do that? Well, I, I just felt bad um, that, you know, by obtaining uh, an important story where Trump had made comments about Canada and trade negotiations, that um, I could inadvertently harm the reputations of some of my reporter colleagues who hadn't done anything wrong. And so basically what I thought would happen was that Trump would either ignore my story where this is, so what happened was I, I obtained uh, off the record comments he had made to Bloomberg about Canada and the way he was approaching NAFTA negotiations. Um, and he was basically claiming that he was not willing to compromise at all. And so this was an important story for Canada. Um, so I, I obtained these off the record comments um, from a source who was not any of these Bloomberg journalists. And so what I thought would happen was that Trump would either say, you know, fake news, I never said anything, any of these things, or he would just ignore it. Like Trump has never acknowledged me before. Um, but what he ended up doing was saying, uh, wow, they, they published my off the record comments. Uh, Bloomberg, you know, they're so untrustworthy. Uh, these reporters, you know, violated their off the record commitment to me. And uh, that just made me feel really crappy, like, because that's not what happened. They, they didn't deserve any blame. And so when the president started going using my story to go after journalists, I was like, is there a way that I could, you know, absolve them and stand up for their reputations? And so I talked it over with um, my direct editor and also the, the editor in chief of the star. Um, and everyone agreed that I, that I could, uh, you know, we wouldn't endanger my actual source. Um, and so that's what I ended up doing. Interesting. Do, do you feel like, um, journalists need to stick up for other journalists? Like, uh, obviously you see this sort of oft heated, Although she hasn't done many lately, Sarah Huckabee Sanders sort of press conferences where she'll take shots at reporters or she'll take, she won't call on a certain reporter. Do you feel like we need to stand up for one another or does that sort of generally, uh, cross a line that we shouldn't cross? No, I, I think we should. And I understand the concerns, like both, you know, we're, we're, com we're competing outlets. We have our own interests, but there's also concern, like, you know, we seem like a cabal, you know, oh, mm -hmm. of course, you know, they're all, uh, gang up on, on the administration together. They, they only stick up for their own. But I think, um, you know, when, when a particular outlet is singled out, uh, wrongly for denunciation, when the administration, you know, uh, tries not to take questions from a particular reporter, um, 
I, I think, you know, solidarity is important. And I don't think, uh, you know, I, I think it's like, uh, you know, like in sports, you know, you can still compete really hard while, um, you know, if, if, uh, if someone is, you know, treated wrongly by, um, you know, if, if, if someone gets injured or something, you know, you can still, you can still help them up. You can still pat them on the back. Um, so I think there are times where we can very briefly deviate from our, um, our competition to, to stick up for each other for sure. To think of the Mueller report comes out and it is absolutely brutal against Trump. And it is a piece by piece, step by step, case by case. This guy was a con man. He colluded with Russia. He went out of his way. He did this. He did that. And it is just meticulously done, perfectly done, full of indictment. I mean, just as damning as could be. Um, doesn't change anything. It, it it could. I mean, I I wouldn't I wouldn't be quick to say it would, but I wouldn't I wouldn't immediately declare that it it wouldn't at all. Um, I think you know uh, the composition of Congress at that hypothetical time would be extremely important. You know, if Democrats do have the House, um, I think they would, depending on how damning it was, consider impeachment proceedings. Um, people f- often forget the second part of impeachment proceedings, which is that. If a president is impeached, of course, like Bill Clinton, it goes to the Senate and, you know, to remove a president from office, you need a two thirds vote of the Senate. Um, but I, I think, you know, Republicans will have to uh, assess their situation going into 2020. I think what happens on Tuesday, what happens in the midterm will help shape that. Um, so if, if they get shellacked in the midterm and then hypothetically there's some damning report, um, Trump's poll numbers, you know, they drop from, you know, the low forties, high thirties to, you know, the twenties, for example, where, where Nixon was, um, you know, we know Republicans, like every politician, you know, they're, they're self-interested. Um, right now they have, to, they feel like they have to stick with Trump. I know it's very debatable because he's so popular with the party base, but if he loses some of that base support, you know, which, which could happen, I don't, I wouldn't say it would, but it could, um, you know, so. I think things could change. So in short, I think uh, things could change, but uh, a lot will depend on the midterms. A lot will depend on how damning the report is and, and what happens in the polls as a result. Before we continue with two writers Sling and Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who thinks these ads for 503 Sports will make her a viral media star. Casey, why do you think these ads for 503 Sports will make you a viral media star? I don't. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Check Twitter. I bet you're trending. I'm not even on Twitter. MySpace? I don't even know what that is. Hyperchub? What? Gleek Gleek? Dad, are you just stalling before you have to give the details? Has it been 10 seconds? I think so. I think so too, because 503 Sports is the kings of throwback sports merchandise. We're talking USFL, World Football League, XFL, Minor League Baseball, Minor League Hockey, Old School, Portland State, or put differently... If you're a man or woman who has long dreamed of owning a Lester Boring Washington Federals jersey, dreams come true. The merchandise at 503 Sports is handcrafted and at all reasonably priced. So be like Casey Perlman and visit 503-sports.com. That was really stupid. Viral stupid? Uh, Dad. I want to turn to one of the most fascinating, fascinating, fascinating all-time things I've ever seen a journalist go through. <laughs> Which is you in 2013 with, as you mentioned earlier, Toronto Mayor, the late Rob Ford, who... um. <laughs> Looking at the article now from CBC News, Toronto Star reporter drops lawsuit after mayor offers written apology for comments he made. The lead is Toronto Mayor Rob Ford issued a second apology late Wednesday, retracting a more detailed statements he made earlier regarding Toronto Star reporter Daniel Dale that had prompted legal action. I wholly retract my statements and apologize to Mr. Dale without reservation for what I said. 
he said, among other things, that you, you'd been lurking or leering near his property. And I think he suggested that you were a pedophile. Am I, am I correct in that? <laughs> that, that, is, that is correct. Yes. Okay. So uh, one of the weirdest, I mean, one of the weirdest experiences ever. How did this happen? <laughs> so it's, it's a super weird story. I'll try to give you a con- condensed version. In, uh, in 2012, um, I was, so I was a reporter covering Toronto City Hall, covering the mayor. And I got a tip that the mayor was trying to buy part of the park behind his house, which is obviously a weird thing. Uh, like no one tries to buy the parks of, of any city really, but especially the mayor, uh, trying to, trying to apply to buy public land and attach it to his own backyard. Um, and so I got this tip. I was like, okay, obviously this is news. Um, I need to go out and see, you know, the elementary journalism, you go see things with your own eyes. So I, I'm like, I, I need to go there, see what this land is. You know, does it have big, nice trees on it? Uh, what is it? And so I went out there and, uh, the mayor, uh, I guess was told like someone's behind your house and, uh, and came out in a, in a Rob Ford campaign t-shirt. Like it was some dream and, uh, basically chased me around and threatened me. Um, he knew me, like I'd covered him for two years. He was like, uh, he got a very high pitched voice and he was like, Hey, uh, you know, you're, you're spying on me. You're spying on me. What are you doing? And I was like, you know, Mayor Ford, I'm just writing about this land that you and your wife applied to buy. Um, and he broke into a full, uh, run with his fist raised and like basically held his fist up to my face and, uh, threatened to punch me. Um, you know, very agitated. And I, so I tried to, uh, I tried to deke him, you know, <laughs> but he was a, he was a football coach, a former offensive lineman. And, uh, for like a 350 pound man, he was, uh, as, as a lot of us reporters frequently noted, he was pretty fleet of foot. And so he wouldn't let me leave, uh, until I surrendered my, my phone and my voice recorder. Um, and so I did but you that. You gave it, you had I, to hand it to him? Yeah. So I, I just dropped it. I <laughs> threw it on the ground. He was like, drop, drop your phone, drop your, like it was, you know, it was basically like a mugging, honestly. Um, I couldn't, he wouldn't let me leave. He was holding his fist up to my face. Um, I was like, all right, you know, I'm not going to fight the, the mayor of Toronto. Um, that seems like a bad, you know, decision for everybody. And so, yeah, I threw my phone on the ground. I ran out there. I called my editor. We're like, what do we do? Uh, he was like, I don't know, you know, just write a memo about what happened and we'll, we'll talk about it with, uh, with our lawyers in the morning. And then that night, you know, before we could get to the morning, the mayor called a press conference on his lawn wearing a Toronto Argonauts, uh, CFL, like windbreaker. Um, where he made up this entire elaborate story that I was like in his backyard. I was, uh, standing on cinder blocks, looking over his fence. I was trespassing. I was lurking. I was lurking in the bushes where like really I'd been standing in a park. Like it was like, you know, and, and he held a press conference at like, it was like 11 PM. And so it was very, you know, it was night. Um, so it made it seem like, you know, he, like it was menacing anyway. Um, he called the cops as well. And the cops did an investigation where I had to do, do like an under oath, you know, statement about, it was like a criminal investigation. Um, so they cleared me, of course, I didn't do anything wrong. Um, and then a, a year and a half later, he did an interview where the, the interviewer asked him like, you know, what's the worst example of, uh, the media treating you badly, something like that. And he said, like, I have to, uh, what I have to say the Daniel Dale case. And he was like, you know, when someone's taking pictures of little kids, I don't want to say the word, but, and so he was insinuating that I was, you know, that I was a pedophile, that I had been, t- you know, uh, you know, trespassing and taking pictures of his, his young children who I think were like under 10 years old, um, which never obviously happened at all. Uh, his, his kids were nowhere, you know, I didn't see them at all. Uh, I didn't take pictures of any, anybody at all, let alone his children. And so 
Um, what is your reaction when you're I, hearing that? What I, I was like, um, you know, I was upset. Uh, I knew that just it, very much like with Trump, you know, he commanded a loyal following in the city of Toronto. You know, he still had like a 30 something percent approval rating. It's a city of like 3 million people. Um, so, you know, maybe like a million people might believe him. That's a lot of people in my, in my city. Um, but, uh, you know, I just want to do my job. I didn't want to like initiate a legal action. You know, I'm, I'm covering this man. I don't want to go to court with him. Um, so we had like a bunch of meetings at the star where, um, we talked this over, you know, they made it clear. My editor is the publisher that this was my decision. Um, and I, I decided that I did not want to take legal action because I didn't think that was, you know, a thing that a reporter should do. Um, but then the next morning, uh, as soon as I made the decision, he went on Washington sports radio. He did a weekly spot making NFL picks on Washington DC sports radio as the mayor of Toronto, just because they called him or like, he was a big football guy and they're like, would you do this? He was like, okay, sure. Um, and he went on Washington radio and like repeated the story again. And wow. I just realized in that moment that, you know, if I didn't put a stop to this through legal action, he would just be defaming me as like basically a pedophile for forever, like as long, you know, as long as he could. Um, and so that's, that's why I initiated a, a defamation lawsuit. That is freaking amazing. And um, that's one of the great, that's one of the great journalism stories I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Seriously, wow, that's yeah. insane. So wait, was, you did you ever, uh, you dropped the lawsuit because he apologized. Did he ever actually call you and apologize? No, but this is actually a funny story that I've forgotten about until this moment. So he, this was done like through, basically he he uh, went on the, the floor of city council and did a terrible apology, like very kind of Trumpian, like, well, you know, Daniel was a good guy, but his bosses put him up to this. So it was like not, a, not an apology. Um, so I insisted on a thorough retraction and then his lawyer got involved and, and was like, yes, of course we'll do that. And so they issued this complete retraction, taking back the whole story. I never heard from him, but then then I think the next day he was doing a bobblehead signing. He had Rob Ford bobbleheads made up and was signing them in like the lobby of city hall. And there's this huge line, like very, very Trump like. And I, I, I looked down on my phone, um, standing in the lobby and I had three missed calls from his chief of staff. And so I look, I called the chief of staff back, this man, Dan Jacobs, and I was like, what, what's up, Dan? And he was like, look, the mayor, uh, to make it up to you, he wants you to know that uh, he's willing to like personalize a bobblehead uh, and sign it like to you. Uh, and it, it was just the weirdest. It's like, you know, okay, as a token of apology for calling you a pedophile, I will autograph a bobblehead doll of myself and give it to you. And I was just like, you know, I laughed really hard. And I was just like, well, I, you know, I appreciate the offer, but... Uh, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pass on that, but, but thank you very much, Dan. I'm sorry. I got to call bullshit here. Not taking that bobblehead was one of your great mistakes of all time. I, I, I would just, I felt, I honestly felt insulted. It, I mean, it was, it was so funny even in the moment, but it was just like, it was just so, so insulting like that. This, this was the way that he was going to make that up to me. So I couldn't, I couldn't take it even though it was hilarious. This is going to sound weird. What was your reaction when he died? Died very young. Yeah. So I was, um, when, when he got, uh, when it was announced that he got, that he had cancer, um, I, you know, I was, I was quite, uh, I was sad. I was legitimately sad because, you know, I knew, like I'd seen him with his kids. They were very young. Um, I'd seen him in sort of more tender moments. And I thought like a lot of the reaction on Twitter from people who didn't like him was like overly unsympathetic. Like this man has a family, he has people who care about him. 
you know, it's kind of like, like imagine, you know, and of, of course I don't want this either, but like if it was announced that like Donald Trump had a terminal illness, like imagine how a lot of people would react on Twitter. A lot of people would be happy about it, honestly. Um, so I was, I was upset with people and I was upset about the situation. Um, by the time he died, I think I, you know, I just reverted kind of back to a, a reporter who had like a, a broader pr- uh, perspective on the situation and, and had remembered uh, what he had tried to do to me. And so like, you know, I certainly wasn't like happy that he died. I wouldn't be happy that anyone died. Um, but I, you know, I wasn't emotional either. Um, I think I was like, you know, this is, this is terrible. Uh, you know, I feel bad for his family. I also know that, you know, he hurt a lot of people, including me. And so I was, I was just kind of neutral. It seems like covering Rob Ford prepared you to cover Donald Trump. Is that, is that somewhat safe to say? Yeah, that's, I think that's, that's true for sure. It's amazing, man. I'm being serious. Dan. You have done insanely good work. I didn't Thank know you. who you were before this election. I mean, before Trump was elected, I knew I, you know, I, the Toronto starving now and then I'd read it when I was covering baseball, but like you have really done something unique in a time when it's hard to do things unique because there are a million of us doing the same job. So I just, Thank you so much for doing this. And I'm really, you've, you've, you've made a fan. You've made a journalism fan out of me. <laughs> That's so kind of you, Jeff. Thank, thank you so much. I, I hugely appreciate it. I want to thank today's guest, Daniel Dale, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Daniel on Twitter at ddale8 and read his work in the Toronto Star. This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. You can visit the website at 503-sports.com. My still newest book, Football for a Buck, The Crazy Rise and Crazier Demise of the USFL, is available everywhere. One can listen to Two Riders Singing Yang on Apple Podcasts and Google Play, and your views are truly appreciated. Music is by the terrific MC White Owl. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.